The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And it's something that has been debated for for a really long time. When Congress is not acting on these things, um, that means the Europeans will. And we've seen that on on the GDPR, the General Data Protection uh, Regulation. We're going to see that when it comes to artificial intelligence uh, regulations. And so when we're not stepping up, that void is going to be filled uh, by others. And when somebody else is filling that void, we may not like the outcome. I'm Alvaro Marañón, fellow in cybersecurity law at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 30th, 2022. The era of the global internet offered opportunities for economic and political progress, but it has also afforded bad actors the opportunities to manipulate and leverage this interconnected system for the worse. Over the past decade, there has been an increase in internet shutdowns, ransomware, and cyber attacks. But despite these growing challenges, there is still an opportunity for collaboration around the preservation of an open internet. To understand what the current state of cyberspace is, I sat down with Adam Siegel and former Rep Will Hurd to discuss the Council on Foreign Relations' latest task force report entitled, Confronting Reality in Cyberspace, Foreign Policy for Fragmented Internet. Adam was project director for both the 2013 and 2022 task force and Will was a member of the 2022 task force. We discuss how the cyberspace environment has changed from 2013 to now, the differences in attitudes and approaches between the two CFR reports, and what the United States needs to do to reverse this trend around fragmentation and to preserve the benefits of an open internet. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 30th, reflecting upon CFR's reports on U.S. goals in cyberspace. Adam. Can you tell us a bit about the CFR and what led to the creation of the first task force? Sure. So the CFR is a nonpartisan, independent uh, foreign policy think tank. Take no U.S. government money and no U.S. Uh, no official positions. And the 2013 task force, I think, was really motivated by the by the need to uh, introduce the national security and economic interest of cyberspace to foreign policy thinkers and to introduce them to the threats, uh, the risks, and some of the concepts that were shaping U.S. policy at the time. And for those unfamiliar with the timeline, what were some of the risks that were shaping it? I know there were a lot of revelations at the time, attacks. Uh, for those out who are a bit unfamiliar, that'd be great. Yeah, so in the, in the 2013 period, 
we were kind of in the wake of the revelations about the U.S. operation uh, against the centrifuges and uh, Natanz in Iran, so Stuxnet, or also known as Olympic Games, uh, the back and forth between the U.S. and Iran. So Iran had conducted a widespread uh, distributed denial of service attacks on U.S. financial institutions. Uh, we saw wiper attacks against Saudi Aramco and another oil producer. We saw, um, in particular, Chinese cyber espionage uh, directed at uh, the U.S. private sector, but also against uh, Defense Department networks and the White House and State Department and other uh, networks. And uh, generally kind of rising cyber crime broadly and the beginning of what we would think of as the fragmentation uh, or the splintering of the internet, uh, more countries blocking content or forcing data localization. And we can get into the internet aspects of that. But before we dive into that, Will, can you speak about your, your perspective about the current cyberspace and how you joined the task force? Well, I, I was excited to join the task force. Um, I had just come out of Congress where for, for six years I spent time um, working on cybersecurity policy, looking at uh, emerging technology and, and, and dealing with the issue of privacy. And so to have this amalgamation of uh, former government officials, academics, think tankers, um, that all have you know uh, great backgrounds in this space w- was exciting and, and for me when when I look at uh, 2013 versus now in 2013 I was still working for a company called Fusion X we were building a a, a company that does technical vulnerability assessments penetration testing uh, one thing we weren't talking about then was ransomware one thing we weren't talking then was really the internet of things right we were talking a little bit about bring your own device that was that was an issue and and so we weren't really talking about uh, supply chain attacks that that's completely different now and ransomware is evolving there's a stronger connection now between geopolitical risk and cyber risk and then uh, the lack of, of security innovation is giving attackers a, a chance, a, a leg up over defenders. And so um, this is why I think CFR was perfect for, for looking at this report because of this, this growing trend between a connection between geopolitical risk and cyber risk. And when you read these two ports together, Adam, they're, they're a bit stark, at least the 22 report. The last eight or 10 years or so have been pretty negative, I would say, in some aspects. But there's a still a period of optimism that you guys speak about. Could you branch about on this? Yeah, I mean, the 2022 report basically looks at the data gathered by people like um, Freedom House and Access Now um, that shows, you know, basically internet freedom has declined every year for the last decade, uh, seeing a lot more content moderation, seeing more blocking, uh, seeing more countries just shut off the internet when they have to because of contested elections or communal violence and you know rising cyber threats that is as well mentioned the you know we definitely highlight the ransomware threat but i think the you know, the 2013 report really kind of captured the sense of optimism about cyberspace uh, at the time you know, at least a quarter of the report was about all the good things that came from the from the open internet social activism and political activism and economic growth and uh, also optimism about what the U.S. could accomplish in that space, a a sense that working with its allies in the private sector, uh, that the U.S. really had a 
set of policy tools that could shape the future of the internet. And I think the 2022 report is, you know, both shaped by what's happened over the years, in particular the 2016 election interference and spread of misinformation and disinformation, and a growing kind of reality about what the U.S. can do on its own and with its friends in the face of China, Russia, uh, and others who have different interests in cyberspace. I was just going to say, when, when you look at, I, I believe it's the first sentence, right, Adam, the, the era of the global open internet is over. You know, that's pretty, that, uh, when, when we started, yeah, we, when we started talking about that, it, it made me uncomfortable, if, if I'm being frank, because, um, but, but as we were working through the, this report and doing our work, it's the reality, and, and, if, and if we don't accept reality, uh, we're not going to be able to make sure we're protecting um, digital infrastructure in the United States, that we're working with our friends. And, and that's why we want to be very clear up front about the successes and, and, and ultimately some of the failures of policy um, to, to set some, some stage for the future. But for a lot of people that have been working on this issue for a couple of decades, this was a pretty uh, a tough a tough sentence to, to, to agree with. And before we dive into the specific findings and pillars, what exactly is global internet freedom for those unfamiliar with this area? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the you know, the, the shorthand was an internet that was global, open, interoperable, and secure. In fact, that was the 2013 report was defending a global, open, interoperable, and secure. And I think when people talk about the fragmentation or the splintering of the internet or the increasing controls on the internet, they're, they're talking about different levels of the stack, right? So in some ways, content has always been more tightly controlled. I mean, from the beginning, when China connected to the internet, it, it blocked off certain types of content and prevented U.S. firms from operating freely in the domestic market on in social media. And even our European allies, you know, they uh, you're not allowed to sell Nazi paraphernalia in, in Germany and France. And there are types of languages that were controlled. But what we're seeing, I think, over time is both the strengthening of those controls and the spread to other countries and a split further down the stack. So we're beginning to see countries preventing suppliers from uh, potential adversaries from participating in, dom in domestic markets. So that global side of it, I think, is really is really fracturing. And the openness is, is harder. It's still, I think, for the most part, for most individual users, it still seems as if it's a global internet. You can still, you know, for the most part, surf around, depending upon where you are. But that uh, split is, I think, moving further down the stack. And we've seen in recent years, a lot, like you said, a lot of political turmoil. You see countries shutting down the internet for periods of time, and it's, it's a scary trend. But now shifting to another finding, you have 12 total here. Data obviously appears, and it's a source of geopower. Uh, Will and Adam, can you both speak about its role in competition? For me, one of the, the areas that I, I spent a lot of time on and have in the past and in the future is artificial intelligence. Our artificial intelligence, to me, is, is the equivalent of, of nuclear fission, right? Controlled, you have nuclear power. Uncontrolled, you have nuclear weapons. And the, the core of all of this is data and the availability of data and who gets access to that data and who controls that data. I'm of the opinion that 
anything I do online is mine, right? And I should be able to determine um, how that information is used. And, you know, the, the government's access to that should be the equivalent of the government's access to, you know, my, my papers and effects at my home. And so, so whoever, you know, the, the, the rules on how you control that data and give access to that data is, is going to determine which uh, philosophy is going to govern a lot of these technologies. Is it more in line with the, the Chinese government where privacy doesn't matter, or is it more in line with the United States and, and in the European Union on this? And this is one area where we, us, the United States and Europe, needs to get on a little bit better page because we're closer together than Europe is with, with China and other authoritarian governments. But what you're able to do with data, and, and not only is it just the data, is it the your ability to control the infrastructure on which that data transits, right? And, and so uh, this is these are two areas that when we look at our foreign policy, we need to be making sure that standards and international setting bodies uh, conform with our view of, of protecting people's information. Yeah, I think, um, so one of the other interesting things about the 2013 and the 2022 report is the framing of China. And in the 2013 report, the, the threat really from China is, as I mentioned before, cyber espionage and commercial espionage, as well as blocking the domestic market. But in the 2022 report, China is behind a lot of the things we're talking about. And, and I think that this point about data uh, and, the, and its role in national security is in part driven by how much work the Chinese have done over the last decade to create a national strategy about data and how they're going to use it, how they're going to gain access to it. Now, you know, there's lots of debates about how successful the Chinese are going to be in that and, and implementation is not the same thing as having a strategy and, and, and all of that. But I think the way that the China challenge is framed in the 2022 report is just much broader. It goes from everything, you know, to who is designing chips and semiconductors to who is helping shape the, the, the global rules of who has access to data. And as Will said, international standards and, and a whole range of things. And so I think that point really is a, is a kind of a, a kind of a signal to, to, to U.S. policymakers and, and our allies, as well said, to the Europeans and others that we really need to engage in better coordination and, and have a more organic, comprehensive view of what we're doing in this space and, and how we want to shape it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with signaling other countries who are developing their own approach to data. Uh, you know, we have the Western, we have authoritarian states, but a lot of countries are developing on their own. And if we come out with a unified voice, I feel like that brings a lot of utility. And another area you speak about in the report is how the U.S. has taken kind of a backward seats around digital trade. And one area that I kind of kind of look at is the executive. You know, we have declarations around the future of the Internet and other broad statements. How do people interpret this or how does this coincide? Well, part of it, you know, was, is just reflective of the U.S. pulling back from international agreements. And so I think, you know, certainly in the in during the Trump administration, when it pulled out of TPP, the the you know the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it it removed itself from some of those discussions, in particular around digital trade. Now, you know, there were other uh, bilateral agreements that were helping shape that space, but they were not having the same impact. What we've seen, I think, under the Biden administration, is a whole range of kind of areas where they're willing to talk about it. So, for example, the Quad, right, the the, the security discussion between 
US, India, Japan, uh, and Australia has discussions on AI and cyber and uh, norms around cyber. Uh, the Indo-Pacific framework is going to have a digital component, but because the US is kind of removed from the, these larger trade negotiations, and, and right now that's, that's bipartisan, you know, there's just no appetite really for big uh, trade agreements. It is harder, I think, for us to, to, to shape those discussions without having a kind of comprehensive view, which is, you know, particularly our friends and partners in the Asia Pacific want. They want to know what they're going to get uh, in return for these digital agreements. And we also speak about, or at least the report speaks about the, the importance of having a unified voice and how the U.S. kind of has failed to deter attackers. I would like to speak about that because from the outside, the perspective, like, the layman, they'll see how sanctions have been active. You know, we've had takedowns of botnets. It seems successful. We have takedowns of tornado cash, the listing sanctions. It seems like we're doing well, but every day we see new ransomware attacks. Look, I, I, I would say that one of the successes of, of the current administration is, is some of the aggressiveness that they've pursued in, in dealing with these, these bad actors you know, retrieving the the Bitcoin from earlier in, in, in this year, or maybe it was it was late last year, and making sure there's consequences to to these behaviors. Uh, one of the things that that we address on is, you know, not only is it about delivering consequences, we got to make sure that every country has rules on the books and laws on the books to prevent this kind of stuff from happening. And if they're not do- taking the steps to to prevent their their country or some of their cities from being the starting point of some of these attacks then they're almost as equally liable uh, for this problem as as who the who the attackers are and but that goes back to what adam is saying we have to engage to talk about what we think expectations are what are we going to do what are our allies going to do we can't bury our head in the sand we got to have friends we have to have allies and this is not just about the United States and our allies achieving our best selves. This is about us making sure that we are we are engaged in a in a fight, and, and the fight is with the, the Chinese government. And so, so we have to have people got to know what the consequences are, which means we have to build up our capabilities to deliver those consequences. And you know, the, the, a debate on this always comes back to um, attribution. And and for me, uh, knowing that I don't need to know that it's Colonel, you know, Oleg in the Russian SVR that did this. All I need to know is that the the Russian government sanctioned this. And so I, I think I think this is one area where us and our allies need to get get more on the same page about how do we deliver consequences. I think there was so there was a little bit of tension actually in the in the report and some of the task force members about this finding about you know what sanctions are useful for and indictments and you know the report basically says they don't have much of an effect on um, our adversaries they're more important for drawing our allies together and kind of drawing a common line together and saying these are the types of things we're going to respond to i think there were some people in the task force who thought actually no you know the, the sanctions and the indictments certainly have a tactical effect as you as you said um, earlier, the botnet takedowns and some of the other things have certainly slowed in some instances the pace of operations. But they're quite reactive. Like, yeah, they're collaborations responding instead of being forward looking. Yeah, yeah, they're they're reactive, but they you know they do something. And and um, I had somebody uh, I was you know socializing the report, and and somebody made a very good point to me that also what the 
the sanctions and the indictments were also useful for uh, explaining to kind of third parties some of the norms and how we're going to react. And so they, they pointed out that was particularly true in, in Southeast Asia and ASEAN, that it, it kind of signaled to them, you know, oh, the Russians and Chinese are kind of breaking these rules and we, we now see it more clearly. But I think, you know, the idea that it, one, as you said, it's it's been primarily reactive and two, long term, it really hasn't made us you know, much more secure. We're still facing these incredible risks from the tax and the the norms and the sanctions are not are not going to stop it. And it's only going to get it's only going to get harder with a splintering of of the Internet. Right. You know, with a a decoupling that we're seeing, you know, are are we even going to be able to use um, financial sanctions in the future if there are multiple systems or, or, or different systems. So, so this, this issue only gets more complicated as the splinter net grows. And so, so this is even more reason why we have to build a trusted, protected internet coalition to, to make sure that us and our friends know what we're doing and, and be clear on that. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the report, Will, Adam, you both identify three pillars for foreign policy to guide the U.S. approach. You spoke about inner coalition. Can you speak about the other two in greater detail? And we can go from there. Yeah, so the, the second one kind of uh, tries to walk the line on this tension between sanctions and other efforts to shape our adversaries' behavior. So the framing is essentially, we should find useful sanctions, we should continue to disrupt the operation, so basically embracing uh, cyber command and defend forward or, or hunt forward operations, and there are going to be some restrictions on what the U.S. does, or we should signal to our potential adversaries that we are willing to discuss some limits on behavior to ensure uh, greater stability um, and that probably should be in everyone's shared interest. And those revolve around uh, election infrastructure, so no destructive attacks on election infrastructure, no destructive attacks on the financial system, and then uh, nuclear command and control systems. Now, again, it's hard to imagine how we're going to have those discussions with the Russians and the Chinese right now, given the, the current political situation. But the argument is, is that that's going to be in all of our interests, right? And we, we still manage to talk to the Russians, the Soviets uh, at the height of the Cold War on, on things that were in all, all our shared interests. Yeah, the, the, the only thing I'll add to that, it, it's, it's the more I, I, I read and learn about that period in the 70s and the 80s, 
at the height of the Cold War. And the fact that we were able to negotiate um, disarmaments agreements on a, on a nuclear arsenal, it's, it's mind boggling that that, 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 po- that that was actually possible. And so I, I think while we recognize how difficult uh, this would be in this current environment with, with some of our adversaries, this is something that we need to and our allies need to, need to articulate. And, and the, third, the third point, the third pillar um, in the report was get the U.S. House in order. And, you know, one of the things that we talked primarily about is the need to bridge the gap when it comes to cybersecurity talent. There's not enough people that have the skills we need. And the number in the government of, of cyber, the, the need for cybersecurity professionals is it's, it's an outrageous number. And, and it starts with making sure we're, we're creating that, those folks that can help us defend our own infrastructure. And then, and then I would even say my former colleagues in Congress uh, need to get their act together and, and pass a privacy law, right? This is like the first letter of the alphabet, right? And it's something that has been debated for, for a really long time. When Congress is not acting on these things, um, that means the Europeans will. And we've seen that on, on the GDPR, the General Data Protection uh, Regulation. We're going to see that when it comes to artificial intelligence uh, regulations. And so when we're not stepping up, th- that void is going to be filled uh, by others. And when somebody else is filling that void, we may not like the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. There's a definitely great benefit in the cyber domain with being the first mover. But in particular, legislation, it seems positive, or at least we're optimistic that finally comprehensive privacy legislation is coming through. I remember being in law school in 2017 and everyone talking about how excited they were that it was around the corner. And even then, five years later, it's still around the corner. That's fantastic. Uh, so regarding other types of legislation, we, we spoke about the workforce issue. Uh, Retention is a, ba- a major issue with the cyber workforce. We can recruit people, but keeping them against the private sector or other things is a big challenge. What are some other legislations that you would look out for to address domestically? This is slightly outside of the, the, the task force report. And, and really, our goal in the task force report was to focus on the foreign policy aspect. It's the Council on Foreign Relations. And, and one of the, the things that we suggested is happening is having a senior person within the State Department be the coordinator of these kinds of activities. I don't know, and Adam, you may have some sense of, of the of uh, Nate's uh, appointments and whether how that's unraveling or uh, unraveling is not the right word, uh, how that is uh, proceeding. But f- for me, it's how do we create, can we create a, a, a position within government at, at the high end? Let's say some great entrepreneur just had an exit event from their company and they have you know, some time to figure out what they want to do next. How do we get that person in the government to work on really tough challenges, right? There's some financial things that when you come in the government, you have to do and, and have to get rid of. Um, that may not make sense in order to get that kind of talent in. How do we get people at the other end that are coming out of university? Can we improve scholarships for people that get a cybersecurity degree? Um, then they're going to come and work in the government. And then when they go out into the private sector, can we loan them back in the government kind of like the way we do um, the reserves? And that's something that is that is within the realm of possibility. Um, and I know there's been some, uh, some initiatives to, to get this this cross-pollinization of ideas 
you have the, the private sector get to, to pay folks the, the, for what they deserve, but they can come in and the government understands some of the unique challenges um, that the U.S. government has, which will then be used to apply um, tools uh, for, for the government to, to, to get better. Because ultimately, the government needs to start, you know, being this notion of buy, not build. That's actual uh, strategy and, and how procurement is supposed to work. And, and ultimately, uh, we need to be making sure that to deal with some of these authoritarian governments that are targeting us, um, where that country, those countries can move all factors of production in one direction, the government and the private sector have to be working and collaborating in a way in order to be able to defend against those, those kinds of threats. For, for those uh, who are the listeners who aren't familiar, the co-chair of the task force, Nate, Nate Fick, who worked with Jamie Missick, uh, so Jamie had you know, spent a long career inside the intelligence agency, inside the CIA. Nate uh, was in the Marines and then the, as a private sector, cybersecurity, and he ha- is the Biden administration's uh, nominee to be the um, ambassador for cyberspace, the, the head of the, the new digital and cyberspace policy bureau inside of the State Department. I watched Nate's hearing uh, in July, I think it was, or early August. Everyone seemed very supportive, given his private security background and his uh, private sector background. I think they were very enthusiastic about how he could engage the private sector in these issues. I think Nate made it clear that you know the State Department hasn't really been playing a larger role in the interagency as it should have been over the last four or five years. Um, right before, under um, in the Obama administration, there was a cybersecurity coordinator who reported directly to the uh, the secretary, but there's been a long move both supported in the Congress and, and the Trump administration. You know, uh, Rex Thorson had a plan for creating a uh, cyber ambassador and Secretary Pompeo also created a plan on his way as he left uh, the department. So there's been a lot of talk about it for a long time that we, that we need this role. And so I think Nate was very clear that, you know, he sees uh, his mission as, you know, bringing state back to that interagency and having it play the play the role that it should. I think the other thing we we talked a lot about is when we think about foreign service officers, what skills and knowledge and expertise that they have. And so, the analogy we used is that you know, as you make your way through the Pentagon as a military officer, right, you have to have joint experience, right? You have to have some time where you served with other um, services and so you understand the joint process. So one of the recommendations we made is that that cyber has to be like that, right? If you're gonna make your way up through the foreign service, you really have to have some time experience exposure to digital and cyber issues. Multidisciplinary, which I feel is the cyber domain, dynamic. No, Alvaro, absolutely. And, and, and not even multidisciplinary, specific experience in that discipline. And, and in the State Department, you have cones, right? When you're a foreign service officer. So, you know, I, I, I was a political officer, you know, so I, I hold the record for CAA officer that, that wrote the most State Department cables. All right. I had I had a lot of work that I had to do on, on behalf of the, of the great State Department. And you have political cone, you have economic cone. I even think there needs to be one where it comes to a technology cone. And it's not just purely cyber. Um, it's talking about other technologies, because oftentimes what happens 
is the the skill sets that's needed to negotiate many of these kind of, of multilateral agreements or to participate in these standard setting bodies, we have to bring people from Washington, D.C. to go and participate in these things. But we need folks on the ground in Brussels, in Vienna, that that can can work on these these issues and that they can stay there, that they can stay focused on these issues throughout their entire career. And, and that's something that that's critically important to, especially when we talk about building trust in that in that Internet coalition. And it seems right now we're in a kind of an exciting period between the public and private partnerships compared to eight years ago. We you know we've seen the importance of recognition, the importance around collective defense. How much utility do you think this has moving forward compared to other states or other promising areas? It's interesting. The 2013 report was built around cooperation with the private sector. And also it highlighted a number of partners we thought were particularly important internationally, Germany and Brazil being two of them. Now, the 2013 report came out the day that uh, Edward Snowden showed up in Hong Kong. Perfect timing. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> a lot of those policy recommendations were kind of swamped by the, the a lot of the disclosures, the Snowden disclosures. And then we had, you know, we had a period of a kind of a not great relations between the government and the private and the tech sector, right? The, the companies did a lot to kind of keep the U.S. government at shoulders length, both kind of legally, just, uh, trying to, you know, transparency requirements, also through technology by rolling out, you know, end-to-end encryption. And some of it was marketing, you know, talking about how they were global companies and, and they had global users. We're kind of past that. I mean, that is, I think, not no longer the case. And certainly, with the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, we're seeing incredible coordination and cooperation between cybersecurity companies and the, and the U.S. government and, uh, and others. That said, I do think the, the task force was kind of less reliant on the private sector in some spaces than the 2013 report was. But I think it has always been one of the great U.S. strengths and will continue to be one of the great U.S. strengths is coordinating in that space. I can tell you when I first got into Congress, so so day one for me was was January in 2015. And if you talked about cybersecurity in Capitol Hill, it really meant information sharing. It was always about sharing, you know, what's what's happening here, what is this potential attack, things like that. Like we've gone beyond that because here's the reality: uh, the private sector probably has way better information than the government on a lot of these things, and are already following this. Um, and now the the conversation is around collaboration, right? How do we actually work and develop tools? Um, that meets our our national interests and our national goals. And and that may sound like semantics, but it's a huge difference in seven years. And I think that is only um, evolving and improving. And and this is one area, there's a a few areas of of bipartisan agreement in Washington, D.C. One is the threat uh, that the Chinese government plays to our, the United States position in in the rest of the world. And two, I would call it, you know, some people would describe it as, as cybersecurity. It's probably broader technology and the need and the importance of technology going in the future. There's a recognition in Washington that the technological change we're going to see in the next 40 years is going to make the last 40 years look like we were monkeys playing in the dirt with sticks and people understand the need to, to, be, to be ready for that. So that's a great environment 
in which this collaboration between the, the public and the private sector is only going to continue to flourish. So there's some political will. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there's some optimism. What are some recommendations that we can go forward to, you know, create a brighter future? Trade agreements, international crime centers. Yeah, some. I think the more concrete recommendations are, you know, as you as you mentioned, one is uh, uh, moving kind of slowly, building a trade agreement. Probably we we talked about, for example, building on the agreement that's between uh, Singapore, uh, Chile, South Korea. So you could kind of start building that that out. We talk about international crime center. So uh, one that is has a more operative side than what Interpol does. So can because every time we do a, a, a botnet takedown, you kind of have to put the ad hoc coalition together of the private sector and different international governments. So could we have a standing thing there? Uh, we talk about a, a international working group on uh, open source, right? So the the log4j um, vulnerability really um, still being recovered to today. Exactly. Yeah. So we really highlighted the, those vulnerabilities, and and uh, adversaries are taking advantage of that. So that I think was a um, important uh, discussion. I would say those are among the kind of more concrete kind of first steps that we could talk about. Yeah, pass a, a, a GDPR-like piece of legislation so that we can be in in line with with our European allies, and then and then lay out you know, what are our norms? What do we consider to be acceptable? And I know Adam's gotten into that in, in, in this conversation, but those are, those are pretty significant um, steps that would, that would move us uh, further down the road. And looking forward, Will, what is an area that the U.S. needs to increase its efforts in? I know you spoke about artificial intelligence. I know the EU has a comprehensive act coming out that has some type of bill of rights. Is that an area you would be looking into or maybe even quantum? So, so AI for sure, we need to, you know, if, uh, again, the, the Europeans are coming out with something in 12 to 18 months, if not sooner, we should be, we should be engaged in that conversation and, and be leading the world when it comes to adoption on principles on ethical use of, of artificial intelligence. Uh, but quantum for me, the, these conversations around cybersecurity are only going to get magnified um, when somebody achieves quantum supremacy. One of the things I've learned being associated with the with the intelligence community for the last two decades is that take the assessments that the intelligence community has, the timeline, something's going to happen, and divide it in half. You know, usually things happen a lot quicker than what is predicted. And this, the, the ability, we all know what quantum, a country uh, achieving quantum supremacy, if one of our adversaries gets there before us, would they be able to keep that secret and then and then basically learn all of our secrets because they're going to be able to 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 break all of our encryption. So moving towards quantum resilient encryption. And again, this administration has passed a number of executive orders on this particular issue. But, you know, I, I remember Adam probably does, too. Why 2K? Right. I was in college and, and I was afraid to be on the road that day because I don't know what was going to happen. And it was nothing like it was a big letdown because why we spent four trillion dollars and like like eight years working on that issue as simple as, you know, making sure that date in our computer was proper. Right. And so this is a level of focus and attention. Um, this quantum resilient issue needs. And look, I, I was talking to some bankers recently and I brought this up and I, I, I was I was scared by the number of people that email me after and be like, Will, I've never heard of what you're talking about. Can you tell us more? And I'm like, yikes, you know, I, I, won, I, I called my personal bank to make sure that they understood what I was talking about, make sure my money's taken care of. So, and again, this is a great topic 
that we can be working with our allies on and that we can be working on how to solve this problem together. Um, we can be working with uh, five eyes, uh, our, our most important um, intelligence partners on sharing information on how to deal with these kinds of threats. And the same principles and theories that we outline here on cybersecurity apply um, to other, uh, uh, the threats of other technologies like artificial intelligence and quantum computing. My sense is across the board, if we're looking domestically or we're looking for foreign policy wise, the, the most important kind of near term issue is, is talent. I mean, I, just anybody I talk to, no matter what they're doing, how we how we train the talent, how we retain the talent, that that just seems to be the, 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 the top line from everyone that I interact with. The report, the report basically says, look, two things can hold us back. The first is, you know, Will is definitely right. There's this bipartisan consensus around China and the importance of technology. Unfortunately, that still doesn't, hasn't been converted into, you know, very fast action, right? Both, both- Semiconductor chips issues and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, look how long it took to, to pass the CHIPS Act. You know, the Democrats and the Republicans are both going after big tech for, for different reasons. And there is a lot of, you know, unwillingness to give the other side a win, even if it's good for, you know, US national security. So. You know, as you mentioned, Alvaro, we've been, you know, at the cusp of a private privacy law for, you know, for many, many years. So there is, I think, a, a worry that, you know, domestically, we're, we're just not going to move fast enough. And the other is, is the working with the, with the Europeans. And here, you know, the war with Ukraine uh, and, you know, China's increasing uh, ability to shoot itself in the foot and alienate European partners in particular, but the, much of the world, you know, before that we had kind of bought into the idea of uh, China's peaceful rise, we've been able to take advantage of that and uh, coordinate more on tech policy. But there's still fundamental differences about how we should treat data and uh, regulation, and those are not going to be necessarily easy tasks. I mean, Europe is still talking about technological sovereignty and digital sovereignty as well. And so we're going to have to figure out how to address those issues. But there also could be a benefit, uh, the slow progress from the U.S. You know, we saw some backlash or GDPR down the road, but the slow process may be a utility, but also it might be a cost, like you say. Yeah, you, you have to, you know, the, the slow process is good when you learn from the other person's mistakes and then you adjust, but you actually have to follow through. It's just learning is, and then, you know, saying, oh, look, that's not a good thing. It's not, it's not the answer. Wonderful. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Adam. And thank you for the council for the great report. Uh, thank you. It was a great discussion. Thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperations with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.